1: at greenlight.com slash ACAST. Welcome to The Mentor. I'm Mark Boris. Bruce Gleeson, welcome to The Mentor, mate. Thank you, Mark. Delighted to be here. Um, And you are the principal of the firm called Jones Partners, which are in your case, you are a registered liquidator and bankruptcy trustee. What the hell does those two things mean? A liquidator? Well, you don't go shooting people, do you?
0: No, look. CIA? I think, yeah, look, we're, we're a chartered accounting firm, but we operate in this sort of field where we help uh, businesses and individuals that get into financial difficulty. And that's really sort of the two registrations that I have, but we also then do some complex investigation and recovery
1: work. Just so I'm clear. You just can't call yourself a liquidator. You've got to be appointed as one. Or th- there's a court appointment or there's a some sort of a panel that appoints you guys. How does it all work? Yeah, look,
0: it is a, a, a registration process. Um, in the case of the liquidation, uh, it's approved by ASIC. Um, in the case of the bankruptcy trustee, there's another another government department that approves that. But basically, you've got to have a certain level of qualifications accounting uh, degree, some post-graduate qualifications, and then obviously the experience. So you probably wouldn't get those registrations until you're about 10 years in.
1: My old mate Ian Ferry, he used to run Ferry Hodgson. I don't know if Ian's even still operating, but he'd be well and truly into his 80s now. Was the uh, coolest liquidator dude back in the 80s. He did some like, really high-profile stuff. He got all the big jobs. Who determines, because as I understand the court points certain firms to be a liquidator? I'm not talking about where someone comes to you voluntarily asking you for your help. I'm talking about where someone's in trouble and the creditors are all jumping up and down.
0: Yeah, typically in those cases, Mark, what happens is is the creditor or in the case of, say, a Melissa Caddick type matter, ASIC would take that application to the court as they did in the Catech matter and have somebody like me appointed because they would have asked for a consent from me in the first instance. And similarly, if a, a creditor is pursuing a debt such as the ATO, they would uh, then ask for a consent from somebody like me as part of that court process.
1: Let's say, for example, I'm running a business, I haven't paid my uh, super for my staff because something's something gone wrong or I've been negligent or I haven't paid my group tax from the money I take out from my staff um, because I ran out of money or I thought it was all going to be there. The ATO comes along and says, hey, you, you owe us a whole lot of group tax. Certainly the protocol at ASIC, uh, sorry, the
0: ATO would send the director's um, notification well in advance of commencing any formal legal action saying, you've got a debt, please engage with us. But ultimately you get some directors that for a whole plethora of reasons don't engage and so it leaves the ATO in that position where they do then take a court pathway. So in that case they um, file an application for the winding up of that company whether it be for superannuation or pay-as-you-go or GST. Um, So certainly in those circumstances that does happen and One of the key things, importantly, is to try and get particularly small business owners to engage with the problem and and stay in control of the process
1: rather than as soon as it starts to get down a court pathway, they've lost control. Right. So that's interesting. So we're going through a tough time at the moment in Australia. Interest rates have gone up. Small business owners have all got mortgages or business loans. They're probably paying a lot more interest now than they would have been paying a year ago they might be still suffering from covid and you know, they've had a pretty tough time business owners in australia they might be starting to get a bit nervous and maybe a bit of a few cash flow problems maybe there's a few creditors starting to bank up what should a person in that situation do yeah there's a lot to unpack in
0: that and i think the first point is that what we saw during covid was with the stimulus that got splashed around and with the deferral of a lot of recovery actions Um, including the ATO. The ATO very much sort of said, hands off, we're not doing anything during COVID. But then last year really started to um, get back into the game and certainly during calendar year 2022 uh, issued 18,000 director penalty notices, which is basically a notice saying to directors, hey,
1: you owe us some money. What are you going to do about it? Why do the directors owe the money? Are you talking about group
0: tax or...? Uh, Basically because for a lot of the taxes now, superannuation, pay-as-you-go and GST, it's about um, a personal liability that, that, that can be sheeted home to the directors if the company doesn't engage with the ATO to either pay it or do something else about it. So that was a sleeper issue that emerged coming out of COVID. That's the first point. And the second point was that, what we saw with all of the other stimulus and the other deferral activities is that the actual uh, external administration numbers crashed during COVID. They halved, and so did the bankruptcy numbers. They halved. And what we're starting to see now is a catch up. Um, and in fact, the last sort of few months' data shows that they've trended back to what they were pre COVID. And certainly when you look at the forecast moving uh, towards the balance of this year and into next year, against the backdrop of rate increases, like you mentioned, we're going to see a big catch up. And so particularly small business owners need to be more aware than ever about where they are, what their position is. And in terms of getting advice, rather than try and solve it all on their own, the two questions that I always ask a client is, so what do you think needs to happen? And what do you want to get out of this? Because Quite often, they know what needs to be done, but they want somebody else to confirm it for them. And it might be that they've got to sell one of the shiny new cars. It might be that they've got to stop taking as much out of the business, or it might be that they need to sell part of the business. But that's a really fundamental question to ask them.
1: I seem to recall that during COVID, the federal government sort of put a moratorium on businesses being put in liquidation. There was a bit of a moratorium. In other words, the government said, it's not fair businesses go into bankruptcy or into liquidation because they can't pay the creditors. Mm. That was stopped for a period of time. Did the government then announce that oh, COVID's over from now on, the moratorium is finished? Yeah, very much so.
0: So as we moved into 2021, uh, a lot of that sort of deferral action sort of got re- removed. But there was then a lag too, Mark, because creditors didn't want to be the first to jump in and say, okay, we're going to start recovery action. So there was a little bit of a further lag before creditors as a general group started to say, hey, um, we actually now need to get back to what we were doing pre-COVID.
1: That includes the tax office. Correct. Correct. So I'd imagine there'd be a lot of people who couldn't solve the COVID downturn for their business. And all that really happened was it was just the delay meant that nothing happened during the COVID period. But once the floodgates were opened again by the government, those creditors have, that they, these people have had all this time have slowly come back into the, into the, into the market and said, okay, well, now we want to get paid. Do you see much of that?
0: We're seeing a lot of it. And I think really when we look at small business in particular, what we know about the uh, external administration numbers is that for any given year, and this has held true over a number of years, 80% of all the external administrations are small business that employ less than 20 employees. So that really goes to the heart of small business that had accumulated debt either in the lead up to COVID, but during covid are the ones that are now really feeling um, a, a, a strong sense of pain.
1: One of those which you've been appointed on is the Melissa Caddick Estate. I mean, can you tell me wh- wh- who appointed you and how's that all work? and what are you actually doing for that estate? Because that'd be an interesting one.
0: Uh, yeah, look, I, I mean, the Melissa Caddick matter was one that um, ASIC approached me to get appointed to over the company that she ran and then over her own affairs. And um, that started uh, back in late 2020. And, that was obviously centered around looking at um, the the fact that she ran a, uh, a financial services business without having a license. And oh, she didn't have a license. No, no, she she was passing off with somebody else's license.
1: She was pretending there was an AFSL license, an so Australian financial services license, sitting in her company, or she was. She had borrowed someone else's license, which she was the authorised representative under. Uh, She was
0: using somebody else's uh, financial services license without their authority.
1: Wow. Wow, that's heavy. (laughs) My God. Um, So so therefore, the people who took her advice and gave her funds to invest were under the assumption that she was a licensed investment advisor or a licensed operator.
0: Yeah, and certainly, uh, you know what we've learned about that. It's it's the classic Ponzi scheme, Mark, where uh, basically you need new investors to basically try and fund out the old investors. And in this particular case, the the nuance of it was that when uh, you know investor A sort of gave over their money, part of it was that she'd said that she'd set up a Comsec account in the individual's name, um, and. That never occurred. It was fictitious. And so what happened during the course of the uh, time that she operated that business, so roughly from about 2013 to 2020, um, she was providing investors with fictitious ComSec statements and they thought that it was the real deal. Well, she was making them up.
1: Yeah. Like just type type, somehow printing them out. Yeah. So this is like fully fraudulent, like full-on fraud.
0: The, the the statements were fictitious. The accounts never existed. Wow. Um, but certainly, in terms of the detail that she went into to get the statements right, because the statements were
1: issued regularly, the investors were thinking that their portfolios were going up in value. So totally convinced. So. Because, of course, you know, the really famous one is Bernie Madoff, and we talk about Ponzi, but that goes back a while. Uh, Madoff did something like this, and he was very good at um, tapping, um, let's call it the higher upper echelon society of of American, you know, entertainers, investors, blah, blah, blah. And he was extraordinarily um, attractive and um, had a great magnetism about him. and. Maybe you could just explain to me, because there are investors out there who may well be talking to these sorts of people. Sorry, I'm not suggesting they are, but may well be coming across people like this with this magnetism, this um, you know sense of, um, wow, these have got a magic touch, et cetera. Are there some common denominators you've been able to glean from you know, what you've heard or read about, about Badoff or what you've seen about Caddick? what are the sort of common denominators that we sh- people should be thinking about and looking out for?
0: Yeah, the the, the key factor in the Catech case was exclusivity. Um, so by that I mean I don't have an opening for you right now, um, which then leads you to feel I might be missing out. So then if there's then an opportunity a month or so later, somebody's now sort of um, moved on and I've got an opportunity for you because you've already felt like you've missed out you're not going to miss out again so you go in and equally what happens in a lot of these schemes is that you then get basically other people within the scheme to do the marketing for the ponzi scheme operator because they say oh this is good you know I'm look at my my portfolio value it's going up it's yeah, going up so it's this fear of missing out yeah yeah uh, and that coupled with exclusivity and just a very charismatic person that's, um, you know, making you feel confident about what they're doing and also very good at deflection. So by that, what I mean is that whenever somebody maybe starts to get a little bit close to the truth, they're very good at basically deflecting and saying, oh, no, but, um, you know, that's not the position. So these people that run these types of schemes, um, you know, whether it be Madoff, whether it be Caddy, whether it be somebody else, they
1: certainly exhibit very similar personality characteristics. If I was looking at one of these people, what should I be looking out for? I mean, uh, I because mean, if they're sending me statements that look like it's a concept printout, mm. how to look beyond that?
0: Well, in that case, and, and it's all good for us to be wise after the event, but totally. one of the things that you know really sort of um, gets to me is that these investors are victims at the end of the day. Uh, they invest on the basis they think the person is the real deal. Um, but what should they or what could they have done in that circumstance? If they'd run ComSec and said, Can I check that this account number actually exists, they would have found out that there was never any such account number that did exist.
1: So they should do a little bit of background checking.
0: Yeah. And, and you know, there's lots of good resources out there. The moneysmart.gov.au website is a you know, provides, you know, people with some really good information resources. But again, like, you know, most people would spend more time researching a car they're going to buy sometimes than researching going into an investment scheme. And I simply say, make sure you spend enough time if you're going to part over with half a million dollars to spend the time checking. If you're not sure how to do those checks, engage somebody that can do those checks for you. Because what tends to happen with with these victims is that they pass over that money in their 40s, 50s or 60s. And then their ability to rebuild and, and recoup and move forward becomes really difficult.
1: By virtue of time. Absolutely. What was the thesis that she presented?
0: Yeah, the, the thesis was uh, that she was basically investing their money in uh, domestic and international shares uh, and that she was a good stock picker.
1: So Uh, she was a stock picker. Yeah.
0: And so she was basically promoting this scenario where she could earn above average returns when you and I both know that depending on what sort of class of asset that you look at, historically, you know, you're probably running at somewhere between 8 to sort of 14% depending on whether or not you're talking about property or shares. So if you're offering sort of 30% annually, I say that should ring alarm bells.
1: So that old saying, if it's too good to be true, usually is too good to be true.
0: Absolutely. Uh, and, and I think, as I said, Ponzi schemes know no boundaries in terms of the people they rope in. Some people are indeed... On one level, sort of quite educated. They're doctors and architects and things like that. On other levels, the level of education might be less. But here's the point if you're not sure about how to do the research yourself, go and get help to do the research because uh, it just, there's always going to be another Ponzi scheme around the corner. It might be crypto, it might be something else. But there'll always be another scheme around the corner. And, you know, we look at the amount of money that's now pouring into superannuation and particularly where there's then a self-managed super fund, people feel in control their money. And then for these perpetrators, that's an access to a pool of capital that they've got.
1: Quite an interesting point you're making here, especially when someone's sort of telling you they're going to make above average returns. So a normal punter, though... I should say, a normal investor should be inquiring at least, what is the norm? What is the average? Like, is it between 8 and 14% per annum over the last 20 years? I mean, 14%, I would have thought it's a very good return, but is it somewhere between 8 and 14%? And so that they know that when someone's proposing or the thesis that someone else is pitching to them is 30%, that right up straight up front, there's a question they're going to ask. Um, because one of the things I think could be happening you tell me is, um, and I don't want to accuse people of this, but investors could let that genie out of the tin called greed. I would have thought Caddick's thesis in relation to doing this in the first place is people are greedy and I can get them because I know they're greedy and I just need to put the bait in front of them.
0: I think there's an element in every one of us that says if we could win lotto, if we could go and – put a hundred bucks on a horse and we were assured it could win and its odds were really good, that that sounds sort of enticing. But I guess what I know in terms of the education and, and training that I've had is that you do need to sort of look at the historical, the ret- returns. because In the market generally. In yeah. the market generally yeah. because, and it goes back to what you said, Mark, if it sounds too good to be true, it usually is. Um, over the long-term Uh, You know, there might be an exceptional year where they do do above average, but over the long term, generally that doesn't hold. And I think people need to ask, you know, those questions. Um, Or as I said, if they're they're not wanting to do that level of research themselves, go and get some help to do it. Because if you've got to spend a few grand when you're about to make a $500,000 investment, in the overall scheme of things, it's peanuts.
1: Yeah, is it a matter of, say, doing a round of collecting money from investors today and let's say I raise a million bucks, 50 people at 20,000 each, and then I tell them they're going to get 30% return and they want to see the returns every month and let's assume I know to doctor all the documents up. And so, you know, the 20% on that means a million bucks means I've got to deliver $200,000 worth of return. Do they actually pay that 20% in the first couple of months to get you a bit excited or they just put it on the piece of paper?
0: Uh, In this case, it was on the paper. In other Ponzi schemes, yes, they do sort of pay it regularly. They're pyramid
1: style. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And so what though occurred here is that when there was an exiting investor, Melissa would either have to make sure that she had enough shares at her disposal that she could sort that exiting investor out or she might need to find a new one. Yeah. So swapping the old for the new. And so that's what basically occurred here. And I think a lot of Ponzi schemes, you know, operate on the basis of not just exclusivity, but uh, trying to attract um, a pool of investors uh, that they have some familiarity with. And I think, you know, whether or not we're talking about the Cadic matter or Manoff uh, or indeed, you know, other matters that, um, you know, occur in religious sort of organisations or sporting associations, where there's a group of people that, if you've got this charismatic person that sort of seems like the real deal, then they've all already got an audience and basically a database of potential investors, and they 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 work that.
1: Sounds cultish, it, it, like to some extent. Mm. You no, know, like she must have been, but apart from being charismatic she had her followers, so to speak, nearly cultish to some extent.
0: Yeah, there's there's elements of that. And I think, you know, it, it says a lot about the personality drivers of, um, you know, the people that run these schemes. You know, they, they're very, you know, they're very manipulative as well. And certainly, um, you know, there's countless books that have been written about Ponzi schemes and and the personality drivers of, of those that perpetrate them. And but I think the key is we've got to be prepared to talk about it. And and the one thing I'd say in this particular matter that I've observed is that um, there's all with some of the investors. There's almost been a, a level of guilt and shame about, well, how how did I fall for this? Um, and that's something that you've you know, is very real and, uh, you know, you can't be dismissive of it. It's something that, you know, they've not only lost money but they're then having
1: difficulty processing they're it. Traumatized. They're traumatised, yeah. 100% traumatised yeah. because it's not something they invested in themselves which of course is trauma in, if you lost the money but you trusted someone and your judgement, not not your financial judgement but your personal judgement, your personality judgement or, or your ability to work out if something's fraudulent or not, or somebody's um, the real deal or not, is called into question. That That is very traumatic.
0: It is. And, you know, you use the keyword trust, and that is what um, the Ponzi scheme operators, you know, run off. They run off, it's all a matter of trust. They get that person's trust, and then they can use that other
1: person to recruit others into the uh, scheme as well. And this has been going on, look, I I know the mechanic one only because it's been in the public arena, but... You know, I can go back to the seventies and eighties. Um, there were there were individuals around did exactly the same thing, it, it's, and it's going to continue to go on forever. Yeah, and that's why,
0: uh, you know, I'm keen to you know help educate people. If 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 we can out of today stop one person from going into a scheme and, and losing half a million dollars, and you know getting proper advice about how to invest it, then when I say I'm happy with that, I'm happy that we've helped that person avoid that loss and that trauma. Um, but it is about sort of educating people and, and talking about it. Um, because whilst there's information there, uh, a lot of people still don't necessarily want to go and get it. And I sort of just come at it from this viewpoint that think about for the sake of a thousand or $2,000, if you're plowing in half a million dollars, that, that sort of investment in getting proper advice about is this actually really the real deal or is there something sort of wrong about it? That's in the overall scheme of things, a fairly sort of, um, minimal amount of money when you're talking about losing sort of 500,000.
1: Should investors, for example, if it's an individual like Caddick running this program, should they ring ASIC up at the regulator and say, just want to check this person's licensed? Certainly. You know, they could have checked uh, that um,
0: the financial services license was actually um, uh, available for use by um, Melissa's company and they would have established that it wasn't. That was. But is that a
1: a step that you would recommend? That's a
0: step, absolutely. And then obviously. Albeit that the horses bolted after this, as I said, that the fact that the Comsec account actually didn't exist, but obviously we're looking at preparatory steps to stop them actually making that investment in the, in the first place. So yes, checking uh, not only things like the AFSL, but even if it's then across other investment classes, Mark, where the AFSL may not actually be a prerequisite, it's actually about sitting down with either. Um, uh, an accredited financial uh, advisor, um, or even a lawyer or even, you know, an accountant that's got some expertise in this area and saying, look, this is what I'm being offered. Can you help me review the paperwork? Because, um, it's just too much of an investment to make and risk it at that part of their, uh, their journey in life. Wow.
1: Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Now, Bruce, I mean, you deal with a, a number of business owners in lots of categories. Um, you know, we talked about the catech style thing, but, but I'm probably more interested in small business owners or medium-sized business owners who have had a tough time. You know, they've just been through the COVID period. Some of them did very well during COVID because COVID did suit some businesses, but a lot of them didn't do so well for all the obvious reasons. And now we've got an interest rate environment and cost of living environment. Wages have gone up, rents have gone up, everything. Everything's just gone out of control. Um, and a lot of these individuals have their own personal mortgages and debt after service and the revenue is not coming in, what should they be looking out for as the signs that there is a problem about to emerge? Yeah, look, it it varies is the short
0: answer. There's, there's some business owners that do put their hand up earlier than others, uh, but in terms of um, how we come to them, we come to them through referrals from other accountants and other um, professionals like lawyers where uh, the business owner has said, not quite sure what to do here. So we sit down with them or they can come to us directly, but we we sit down with them and there's two questions you've got to ask the business owner, particularly when we're talking about small business, because what we know is that uh, of all of the external administrations that occur, 80% of them are basically small business. So, And that is a statistic that hasn't changed a lot over a long period of time. And so what that says to us is that they generally don't have access to the same level of resources in terms of advice and governance that larger businesses have. So you've got to ask them two questions, I think, at the start. What do you think needs to happen? And what do you really want to get out of this process? Because what we know is that they're in a bit of a washing machine environment um, quite often when they get to us. And by that I mean they're just being spun around they've quite often got so many issues they don't know how to prioritize them and they don't know how to importantly compartmentalize them
1: and they're also running the business
0: and that's right and so in that context you know they're typically good at what they do whether that be a mechanic whether that be a sparky chippy whatever um but this isn't their gig. It's quite often their first time experiencing sort of financial distress. And so a lot of the time they try and bat on initially, they might even bat
1: on a little bit longer. Trying to be staunch.
0: Uh, Yep. But then it gets to a point and it might be that they lose a major contract. It might be that there's then a health issue or it might be that um, the ATO is starting to knock on the door and say, hey, you need to sort of sort us out. So it can be one or a combination of those things. But quite often they're carrying a massive load on their shoulders. But when you ask them, what do you think needs to happen, quite often they know the answer.
1: Could be to sell something, sell the business or put my hands up so I can't yeah. go anywhere.
0: And, and look, what an example would be, Mark, um, if, you've, if you've got a business owner that's maybe in their late 50s or 60s, been running this thing for sort of 25, 30 years um, and I'm sitting down with them, And I say, what do you think needs to happen? And they might say to me, I'm emotionally tapped out. I've got no more to give to the business. And that might then lead into a discussion about, well, is there anybody else immediately in the business that we can sort of, um, you know, use to restructure it? But when we're talking about small business, we're talking about the energy that ultimately the business owners bring to that business. And if you've got to work out if they're emotionally tapped out, or if you help reset them, they've still got the emotional energy to push on.
1: Irrespective.
0: Irrespective. Because if they don't have that emotional energy, even if you try and help reset them, they're still not going to be as successful as
1: you want them to be. In which case they probably should sell it.
0: Yeah. And and so you, you then start to talk to them about a whole different range of options. Um, and that then sort of leads into this discussion about what do you want to get out of this because it's, it's actually trying to listen to what's going on inside of them and then say, okay, now with what I know and then we start to look at the financial position, what are our options? So it is really about, I find, with small business owners, tapping into the emotional part of what's
1: going on with them. When someone might be in a little bit of trouble, they come to someone like you and they get you appointed as a, an administrator. I and mean, how's that work? And, wh- and what's the purpose of the administration compared to, say, going into liquidation? So liquidation is like putting your hands up, I'm in trouble.
0: The key differences between the two are the administration process gives the business a chance to restructure, recapitalize, and come out the other side. Uh, for example, a, a building company, uh, you know, it's it's got caught on some fixed price contracts, uh, and it needs to basically um, go through and compromise its claims with its trade creditors, with its subbies, with the ATO. What it compromise its claims? Uh, basically. Do a deal. Do a deal with them. So instead of them getting 100 cents in the dollar, they might get 30 or 40 cents in the dollar. Um, so it's to basically reset the balance sheet of that business so that it, that it can then move forward uh, because it can it's effectively reduced the liabilities on its balance sheet. We basically do that as as the administrator. So So. we would take the company through that process over a period of about eight weeks. It's simply the directors that are in control of the business come to us. We basically sit down and go through that analysis that I just sort of went through. And if administration is the right vehicle for, for dealing with the company's financial challenges, then... Will then get appointed by the directors. They just simply pass a resolution uh, to appoint us as administrators, and then uh, there's a plan to try and recapitalize or, or restructure the business
1: around that. What do they step down? What happens?
0: They basically, uh, during that period of administration, uh, they're basically put on the sideline in terms of any official capacity so we, they can still be employed in the business and um, you know certainly help run it during that period of time but the administrator is the one that typically takes on all the risk during that period and then if um, the proposal for restructure or recapitalisation is accepted by the creditors, we hand control the company back to the
1: directors at that point. So how long does the administration period normally go for?
0: In... In a lot of sort of smaller sort of uh, family business type uh, matters, about eight weeks.
1: Yeah, so a couple Um, of months. Yeah. So they sort of go along to you and say, look, Bruce, we're in a bit of difficulty here. You know, know, we've got fixed rate contracts with customers, clients, but our cost of delivering on the fixed rates has gone up three times. So, you know, for whatever the reasons are, supply chain issues, et cetera. So we can't honour those fixed cost agreements. Those people are creditors of ours, um, Bruce. We'd like to go into administration because we feel as though we've got a good future, but we have to sort this this stuff out now. You guys accept the appointment, come in as administrators. You send a notice out to, I guess, to all these creditors, all these people they owe money to. Call a meeting, explain the situation. Just say, and what do you say? Like, look, we owe you, uh, you know, hundred thousand dollars, but we only can afford to pay you thirty take it or leave it
0: effectively that's it because um you know what firstly all of the stakeholders to that process whether it be the subbies the trades or even the customers in that that case they've all got a fundamental problem and that is that if um the business doesn't move on and and survive going forward then there's a good chance in those kinds of matters that uh, the return that certainly the subbies and the trades will get could be you know very little or or, or nothing because it goes to um,
1: liquidation. Yeah,
0: it will then move through to liquidation if that compromise isn't accepted. So uh, certainly in that case, it is about trying to work out something that. Um, is appealing to uh the subbies and the trades and also that potentially gives the customers uh, or the homeowners a, a solution going forward so that's one sort of example but also mark what sort of came out during covid is what i call the little brother sort of legislation of the voluntary administration regime which is the small business restructuring process and in general terms uh, if you've got liabilities in a business up to a million dollars, then um, as long as you meet some other criteria, it's a it's a quicker process. It's a lot less costly process and it leaves the director in control of the business during um, that uh, period where you're trying to, again, negotiate uh, a deal with your creditors. So we're finding at the moment that as we educate more accountants and we educate people about that, that that's getting some take up. And that's, quite noticeable um, where you've got businesses where their predominant debt
1: is tax debt. Is there some legislation that recognises that small business who might have debts under a million bucks, there's obviously some qualification for this, but um, don't have to go and appoint an administrator?
0: Yeah, they appoint what we call a restructuring practitioner, but different to the voluntary administration regime, the director still stays in control of the business. So that sort of came out, that legislation out of COVID, uh, came in in sort of early 2021. And it was specifically to try and deal with the after effect of COVID, but that legislation's continuing on even as we morph out
1: of COVID. You're not handing over control to the administrator, one? And two, how is it less expensive is because? Well, because because we're not actually
0: trading on the business ourselves during that period that we're trying to reach a, a compromise with the creditors, then those trading costs that we would all ordinarily incur of us sort of authorizing purchases and things like that aren't there. So there's that and um, because it's, it's a slightly quicker process, it tends to just be more um, cost effective in that sense. And, and that's the way it should be because we're only dealing with a business that's got liabilities up to a certain threshold.
1: And, and so what are you seeing at the moment? So here we are in 2023, it's been a pretty rough four or five years. What are you guys seeing out there? Yeah, where
0: we're at in terms of the numbers is that um, certainly in terms of the the corporate insolvency numbers they halved during COVID, and so did the, the personal insolvency numbers. What we're seeing in the last quarter of uh, 2022 um, and in the early part of 2023 so far is that the monthly statistics coming out are tending to show us that we're now trending back to what the pre-COVID numbers were. So, but not worse but not worse at this point. And I think what we've got to recognize about that is that what there's there's 800 odd thousand mortgages that are going to come off fixed loans to variable loans this year, what's that about 300 billion bucks or something like that. We've also got the catch up that the ATO is now, you know, very much in full swing about uh, It started in sort of 2022. We're seeing that continue to develop during 2023. So, we think that you know there is going to be um, certainly an ex- a slight acceleration on the number of companies that need uh, some kind of advice and do go into external administration. And what we see is that personal insolvency numbers or statistics tend to lag corporate insolvency statistics by about six to twelve months. So certainly we're going to see an uptick as we move later into this calendar year and into twenty twenty four. And I I don't think that's much of a surprise when you look at the general economic conditions and the fact that we're we're up to our ninth
1: consecutive interest rate increase. I guess it's not too bad what you're saying. It's not perfect. It's not a great feeling, but you're not seeing a massive increase yeah. at this stage.
0: At this stage. And I think what we are seeing is the inquiry rate is really ratcheting up.
1: Oh, right. Um, but, is that because people are more aware of people like you or is it because there's more problems?
0: Uh, I, I think there are. I think it's two things. One is in small business land, typically um, a major creditor of theirs is the ATO. So a lot of this is sort of being stimulated out of the ATO, raising awareness with the director saying, hey, you, you got to do something about this now. Um, no longer can we just wait. And I think generally it's this whole wealth effect thing where people don't necessarily uh, feel quite as wealthy as they do now because properties are maybe dropping a little bit in value. Substantially. So, so w- Unlike when we were in the upswing of the property cycle, we all felt a little bit, uh, you know, um, flush with everything and we were happy to upgrade cars and furniture and all that. We're now at that opposite end of, of, of the cycle. You've
1: mentioned the ATO a couple of times, which is very interesting. Are there, and, you know, like all creditors deserve to be paid, don't get me wrong, but are there some creditors who rank ahead of other creditors?
0: In any small business in particular, indeed any business, your employees are key, right? So... They need to be constantly looked after. But legally, after. you're talking about? Uh, well, legally as well. So employees do have a priority for all of their
1: normal entitlements plus their superannuation as well. So that if you're in a business and you're doing it a bit tight and you've got to make sure that your employees' wages get paid and their super gets paid.
0: Yeah, because if certainly if you don't pay their super for um, extended periods of time, the director can be personally liable for that.
1: Right, so the tax office will hold that director personally liable for the super that's not paid by the company or the business for that particular employee.
0: Yeah. And and that's, um, we talked earlier about the director penalty notice regime that exists. And that's really about the ATO saying to directors, hey, um, particularly when it comes to superannuation, this, this is something that you could personally be on the hook for. But then there's the pay you go element, which is the old group tax element out of an employee's wage, and then um, GST. So both of those amounts to a director can be personally liable for. And what we tend to find with small businesses is that um, the ATO gets prioritised to last. Um, so they'll pay their employees, they'll pay their other key trade creditors um, and look, to, look after a bit of the bank debt. But the ATO is a bit of a poor cousin sometimes. Um, And that's why we see
1: it being prevalent in a lot of small business insolvency. The small business owner prioritizes the ATO last because that's probably a grudge payment. Does the ATO have any legal priority over anybody else? No, so it lost a lot of its priorities some
0: time ago, but then it replaced the loss of those priorities with the director penalty notice regime. So that was sort of the, the swap over is that we'll we'll lose some of our priorities, um, but we'll now take on this sort of ability to pursue the directors personally in certain cir-
1: circumstances. And are you seeing many director bankruptcies or directors having to pay this up, or is it just uh, like a threat at this stage?
0: Well, it's it's interesting because... You know, there were so many issued last year. What's not quite known at this point is the extent of the follow-through uh, on the what we call the expired director penalty notices. So once they're expired, that that's when the ATO could initiate action against the director personally. Um, but I think that is very much a watch this space because it's somewhat inevitable that we're going to see some level of action be taken on those expired director penalty notices
1: are there any defenses to this stuff i mean how do you defend it
0: um there are some but certainly uh you know the 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 normal defenses like uh you know the dog ate my director penalty notice aren't going to fly um you know so you know equally i moved addresses but i never updated my address on ASIC register those kinds of things don't generally fly um there are defenses in in other respects but some of the more ones that people say, oh, but I just never um, received it. Probably a little bit more difficult to. It's uh, not prove. criminal, is it?
1: No, it's not a criminal. It's a civil penalty. Penalty, yeah. and if they, if the the government has to prove the amounts outstanding, the ATO, and if they get the proof in a court, um, the, it's, it's yeah. Playable. There's
0: yeah. I mean, certainly the expired director penalty notice would then enable the ATO to um, proceed with a statement of claim and a bankruptcy notice, and that would afford the individual some opportunities to try and um, challenge it if they wanted to challenge it. But but this is all sort of comes back to what's important for small businesses, staying in control of it yourself, making sure that, you know, um, y- you're lodging your bazers on time and making, and if you're doing that in-house, great, but if you need some external help, get that external help, you know, realise that um, a lot of this, Mark, in terms of director penalty notices and potentially sheeting that home to the individual, that can be avoided if they actually have good compliance measures and they're lodging and lodging on
1: time, even if they're not paying. For me, I, th- I see 2023 as a scary period um, in an economic sense, national economic sense. Time will tell whether I'm right or wrong. What would you say to people who are sitting out there it would feel as though they're on the edge.
0: I would simply say don't try and solve the issue yourself because um, for a lot of them they're good at what they do but they're not necessarily good at then dealing with when they're in some level of financial distress. And the old adage a problem shared is a problem halved is sometimes you know part of the solution as well. So rather than just keep ploughing on and thinking if I get this extra contract, or if I do this, it'll all be good. Um, What's the worst that can happen? You you share that problem with somebody else and then they either agree with your proposed course of action or they say, no, you actually need to do this or, yep, do that, then come back and let's actually revisit where we're all at. And I think it's about, you know, finding somebody that is prepared to listen to the journey that you've been on and actually help try and prioritise and compartmentalise how you need to then move forward um, because just trying to do it on the internet alone is really challenging.
1: Where do they find one of these people?
0: Firms like uh, ours and and myself, we're happy to spend, you know, an hour sort of free uh, consultation with people, just giving them a sense of, you know, uh, listening to the and, and saying, look, these are some things that you can consider. How we get found, we could get found through uh, the account that they use or yep. a lawyer that they use, or more broadly, um, they could find us through the ASIC website, you know, typing in yep. um, registered liquidators or just typing in some general uh, aspects around what to do if I'm in financial difficulty. But there's then other sites like our professional body site, arita.com.au, where they can sort of get some access to. Uh, you mentioned firm you sites. mentioned the
1: government's website. Is there any government websites where they could go to?
0: It'd just be ASIC.gov.au, Asic. right. uh, .gov.au, and they then have to um, go into the registered liquidators register. But probably better to you know uh, also go on to. Um, our professional body website, which is just au, And there's some really good resources on there um, that talk about um, options for people and, and also help deal with, Mark, the mental health issues that quite often go hand in hand with financial uh, stress. Um, and, you know, we see it time and time again, you know, what comes first is not always necessarily clear, but the health issues, particularly the mental health issues, if somebody's been carrying this sort of weight on their shoulders for a long period of time are, are quite sort of profound and that's why it is about listening to what they think needs to go on um, and then if that's right, then helping them through that process because it is about trying to get them reset and and able to see a pathway forward.
1: Apart from the interesting stuff about Melissa Katik, et cetera, I think one of the most important things that come out of this for small business owners at least is... You said it, a problem shared is a problem halved and you won't get anything solved unless you go and talk to someone about it, but they should do something sooner rather than later. Just don't sit on your hands and say, oh, everything's going to be okay.
0: Absolutely. Look, it's not about judging people that we're talking to. Everybody's got a story uh, and it's about understanding what that story and that journey's been like. And it is then very much about sort of saying, well, this is how we can help sort of reset you moving forward. And then, you know, it is if they're feeling that they've got a sense of control in that process and that they've been heard, um, then that makes that engagement piece and the outcome for them a lot better.
1: And it might also avoid bankruptcy by letting it go too far. And that's a big deal. And people want to do deals. Like if 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 someone owes me money, do I want to run the risk of them going down the tube and me getting nothing? Or would I rather come and say, I'm going to give you 50 cents on the dollar? I'd take the 50 cents on the dollar every day. If I thought, if I, especially if someone like a, a third party presented it to me, I would rely on that third party not to be bullshitting me and uh, offering me a fair deal because that's a deal that can be done. For, for all the creditors, I'd, ra- I, me as a creditor, I'd rather get paid 50 cents on the dollar than get zero on the dollar. I'm not that interested in someone going bankrupt, by the way, and on the flip side of it, no, you know, not most times people are not the caddocks of the world. They're just business owners who are doing it tough for whatever the reasons are, economic reasons. They're not setting out to defraud anybody. If I say quite
0: often nobody wants to have their business go into some form of external administration or nobody wants to sort of go through some kind of personal insolvency event. Um, but sometimes that does happen but it is still understanding that there's a human being there as part of that process. Um, but equally, if you act early and you can stay in control of the process, the range of options available for you to come out the other side is just so much more.
1: Stay in control. I like that one. Stay in control. There's no judgments. So Bruce Gleeson, who is the principal of a registered liquidator and bankruptcy trustee called Jones Partners, um, enlightening and pretty saucy with the caddy stuff, but uh, very valuable. Thanks, Wayne. Thanks, Mark. Enjoyed being here.
0: Thanks for listening to another episode of The Mentor with Mark Boris. Audio
1: and production is by Jessica Smalling. Production assistance, Simon McDermott. This is a mentored podcast.